Welcome back to the Steadfast Podcast. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving time with your family. And remembering all the things that God has blessed you with, counting your blessings and thankful for what he has done for all of us that have received him as Savior. And what he continues to do for us every day. I hope you're seeing God's hand in everything. Before we get into our study tonight, we had a youth group at the church just a couple hours before recording this. I wanted to talk a little bit about what we talked about at youth group with the teenagers. We started our Christmas series tonight called Merry Christmas to Me. I wanted to touch on some of these things. So it's just really the beginning of the Christmas season. Well, some might have started a long time ago. Uh, Some start really early. So I want to ask a couple questions and and, uh, talk about a few things. So far this year, have you spent more time thinking about what you want for Christmas or what you plan to give others? Why do you think that is? As a believer, most of us would would say that, yeah, Christmas isn't about gifts and all of that. And we've all heard saying, right, Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's absolutely true. And we've all heard the saying, it's not about what you get, but what you give. And. What a lot of times happens is people come January will look back on Christmas Day as either being good or bad based on how their experience was. Was the gifts exchanged good? Were the gifts horrible? Was the food good? Was everyone nice to me? Was everybody getting along? Was it boring? And people, a lot of times, will look back and say, that was a great Christmas, or that was a horrible Christmas. But it was all based on what your experience was. What if Christmas can be amazing 
even if there's horrible gifts, there's no food that you like, and your family can't even get along, but Christmas can still be amazing for you. That's what we've talked about at youth group, and uh, I want to touch on that a little bit. Because the main focus of Christmas has nothing to do with us and our experience. It's something much bigger. And when we change our mindset about what Christmas really is, it can it really can change us forever as far as how we view Christmas. Now, I came up with my perfect Christmas. So I'm going to read to you what my perfect Christmas would be like if it was all about me. The point of this, of course, is to just share that it's not all about me. But here's what it would be like. I would wake up Christmas morning to Grammy Bernice's homemade donuts fresh out of the oven. These are plain donuts here. And then I'd load the peanut butter on top of them. That would be awesome. Then my family would all read the Bible together and talk about the birth of Jesus. After that, we would relax by the Christmas tree. And we would watch each child slowly open all their gifts and actually get to play with each one instead of rushing through. Then after presents, we would all go to a hike up a mountain without packing a bunch of gear and taking all the time to load and all this, just, just going. We would then hike back down and then head to my parents for lunch, where my whole family, including my extended family, would fill my mom's house. And for lunch, we would be eating comfort foods instead of the traditional Christmas foods. We would have options of Homemade pizza, grilled cheese sandwiches, steakums, and a dessert finish it off with homemade ice cream milkshakes. For me, I could care less about the ham, the turkey, any of that stuff. And then after dinner, instead of watching football, which many do, the family would all go outside and play soccer. But there'd be steaks. The steaks would be winner gets to pick the movie. And after my team wins, of course, we would come inside and watch the movie that I, I chose, um, which would be, we'd watch two movies. One would be Christmas Oranges, and then probably we would watch Elf. I like both of those. And after the movies, we would all head home and finish off the evening singing worship to God. There you go. There's my perfect Christmas. But that was all about me, right? Now, my story, of course, is not your story. But it is similar that human beings typically, what do we want? We want a cozy Christmas. We want, we really want to be cozy every day, right? Comfort. Not just Christmas. We all want to be comfortable. And that means different things to different people, of course. Comfort for you might be uh, having fun all over the place. Comfort for you might be not having to worry about anything and just relaxing. 
comfort for you might be actually everybody actually just getting along. Or maybe find comfort in things going according to plan, things are working out. All want at the, at Christmas time or the holidays, we want it to be fun, right? We want it to be peaceful, we want there to be no worries and somewhat predictable. But that was not the case with Jesus. And the, the, the reason for the season, right? Jesus is the reason for the season, what we said. You see, the first Christmas, Jesus' birth was not comfortable at all. Mary would make that long journey along with Joseph to Bethlehem. Most likely riding on a donkey, pregnant. And there's no room in the inn for them. So they go to a cave. Yes, Jesus was not born in with hay all around and in the traditional manger scene, okay? Well, Jesus was born in a cave, dark. And after he was born, they laid him on a, they call it a manger. It's a feeding trough. It's a little thing where animals eat out of, and they've been eating out of it, and it stinks, it reeks. That is where the Savior lay. Not comfortable at all. Unlike our uh, mine or maybe yours desire for Christmas, that we want a cozy, comfortable Christmas. To go above that, if that wasn't enough, Mary is getting looks by everybody. Because here she is, pregnant, but not yet married. And she's getting the looks. The pressure that's upon her, the ridicule, plus having this long journey and the baby being born in a cave, totally uncomfortable was the first Christmas. And she could have told people, hey, an angel visited me and told me that, that I'm going to have the son of God. And, and people are laughing at her, You're imagining things. Mary and Joseph. You see, an angel did come to Mary. An angel came to Joseph as well. And said, you will have a baby. How can this be? She said, I'm a virgin. How can this be? It says the Holy Spirit will, will overshadow you, the Shekinah glory. Because it's going to be God. You're going you're gonna to be having a baby and it's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be God himself. And this baby you're going to have, Mary, will save the world. Think of the weight that Mary held in Joseph. Not comfortable the first Christmas. She was afraid, no doubt. She had questions. How can this be? What Mary did is she... Agreed to it. She she wanted God's will. Mary did what God asked, even though it meant giving up her comfort. Same thing with Joseph. Joseph at first, see, see who he's engaged to, pregnant, and he's disappointed. And he wants to give her a bill of divorce privately. 
You see, engagement in those days was considered a done deal as far as marriage, even though the ceremony hadn't taken place. If you were engaged, in order to break that off, you would have to write a bill of divorcement. And Joseph, not understanding yet, this is the son of God, that, 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 that indeed this was being born of a virgin. He didn't understand that yet, wanted to put her away privately. Shows the character of Joseph. On the other hand, maybe Joseph wanted to, to, to put her away quietly because if he didn't, if it was public, that would not be comfortable for Joseph, right? But nevertheless, the angel came to Joseph and explained it to him. And Joseph, along with Mary, did what God asked, even though it meant giving up his comfort. Both agreed to obey God's will. Now you and I, when it comes to Christmas, we want our cozy Christmas, right? But Christmas isn't about us. It wasn't about Mary and Joseph. The first Christmas was not cozy, comfortable at all. Why did Mary and, jo and, and Joseph give up comfort so willingly? Well, they knew the same thing we know, or if you don't know, you need to know, that the world needed a Savior. And they were willing to get uncomfortable for that. Are we willing to do the same thing? We typically, we like to look through our own lens, right? Our own story, what we're looking for for Christmas, what we're looking for here, what we want here, our preferences. But again, it's not about us. There's a bigger story, much bigger story. You see, what if Mary and Joseph had said no to God? I can't do this, God. Jesus, he still would have been born of Mary, still would have happened, but they would have missed out being a part of the blessing because they were a part of the greatest moment in history, the Savior's birth, that along with the resurrection, the greatest thing to ever happen in this world. So the challenge to you and I is like Mary and Joseph, to realize Christmas isn't about them, it's not about us. And use them as examples to choose obedience over comfort. Christmas is not about us. It's all about Jesus, who himself became uncomfortable. He left perf the perfect relationship. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit never been separated, constantly together, perfect relationship. He didn't have to come down here to this messed up place. But yet he left that perfection and put on human flesh. He became a man and dwelt among us. He became uncomfortable. Was tempted in every way that you and I were. Experienced pain, suffering, betrayal, even at the cross, he cries out, why have you forsaken me to God the Father? 
that relationship he's always known, never been separated from the Father. But for that moment, as he takes the world's sin upon him, the Father turns his face away. Uncomfortable for us. That is our Savior. To save us. So how can we choose obedience over comfort? Well, we can be kind to the family members you struggle with. Maybe we can volunteer to serve someone who's hurting or in need. Maybe we can spend time with someone you know needs a friend who's lonely. You see, many people are sad at Christmas time. And maybe we could push our cozy little story to the side for somebody else's story. And I'm not just talking about people, although that's great too, uh, when it's more about giving than receiving. But the story I'm talking about is pushing our story aside. To tell someone the story of Jesus' birth and what it means for us. That is what Christmas is about. So maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this each week as we get closer to Christmas. Jesus indeed is the reason for this season. But that's not just a saying. It's because he got uncomfortable for us. Mary and Joseph were willing to be uncomfortable for the Savior in the world. And are we willing to push our cozy little story aside to be uncomfortable in obedience to God's will this Christmas? We'll come back in our next segment with our study through Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. When we left off, chapter 8, we were talking about the worldwide flood and the judgment of God that came on a violent, sinful, progressing of sin world that, that Noah lived in. But yet Noah found grace in God's eyes, a just man. Who sought after being obedient to God. We finished off in verse 22 of chapter 8. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So the whole environment, everything has changed after the worldwide flood. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and God blessed Noah. And his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. All of us, human race, go back to the line of Adam. We go right back to the beginning. We also, all of us, go back to Noah. See, there's only eight that came off that ark that came from the lineage of Noah. 
And it says here that God blessed Noah. To be blessed, what's that mean? It means to be happy. Happy, 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 a plurality. Why was Noah so blessed? Because Noah was a worshiper. What's the first thing he did when he came off that ark? He built an altar to worship God. He delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in obeying what the Lord has to say. And he obeyed God. Therefore, he is blessed. Noah worshiped God by responding to him. That's often proof of our worship to God is are we obedient to him? When we obey, it shows that we are worshiping by our obedience. So Noah here, he's happy. He's blessed. And verse 2 says, in the fear of you, Noah here, man, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every animal, upon every bird of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all the fish of the sea, and to your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. So no longer were they vegetarians anymore. Now, God says, you have all this meat for food here. No restrictions. Whatever you want to eat, you can eat here. The animals before the flood, they just dwelt with the people. Now it says the animals here will be afraid of the people. They will be hunted for food. Reason to be afraid, right? And there will be a different nature to the animals. They will be wild. Which is a part of the curse of the world. Before the flood, there was no problem with the animals being around. And man could be around animals. Animals could be around men. They were both vegetarians at that point. No fear. I mean, the animals would come right up to men. Easy for them to be. It was rather easy to put them on the ark, right? Because they're all around and there was no fear of each other. After the flood, things changed. Even today, bears and sharks, deadly things, right? But today, they're, they're naturally afraid of human beings as well. The only time we see animals attack, really when they feel threatened or, or there's some kind of sickness going on with them, something weird going on with them, most of the time, they will try to get away from you. There is a built-in fear that God has given to animals. Now, pets, obviously, are a little different than domesticated. And because of the training and environment they have been given, they're a little different, but naturally, animals are afraid of us. Part of the reason God probably gave them a, a fear is because the progression of sin. Men's, men's still sinning here. And we will see that very quickly as um, they get into building a Tower of Babel. We'll get there. But it's, it's 
progressing the sin of man. And if the animals weren't were not afraid of man, quite frankly, it probably would lead to the extinction of most of them if they weren't afraid. Now, as far as endangered species and all the things that go on to protections, there's a lot of great work there. But of course, many take that too far today. Some of our regulations make it hard for fishermen or farmers and and really dictate government control and follow the money trail, of course. But because of man's greed, no doubt the protections on whales and some other things, man has used wisdom there. That's a great thing. But just think if animals weren't, weren't afraid, like they were before the fall. Were the greedy, sinful men, animals not afraid? The food supply would have drastically changed for us. There wouldn't be much. Because man would have went overboard. And there'd be many animals extinct, no doubt. But God clearly states here, and I think there's a purpose here. He's clearly stating that Animals are different from human beings. We didn't evolve from them. Evolution would say we evolved from them. God knows the end from the beginning. And he knew that one day this evolution thing would come along and people were going to buy into it. God is saying here, hey, well, these animals, they're going to be afraid of you. There's a difference. You see, animals have no spirit. They have a soul. They're minding emotions. They have a life. And they have a body, but they don't, they're not made spirit like us. We human beings were made in the image of God. A trinity. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are body, soul, and spirit. So God making a statement here with the animals. But he continues on in verse 4. Says you can you can eat of any of the animals. Go ahead. But there's an exception of how you do. Verse 4 says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. God says, don't drink or eat the blood. Why? It's a picture, of course, here. God will use the blood of Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of the world. That's what this is all about. It's the, the, the blood going through. The scripture says, without the shedding of the blood, there's no remission of sins. And all the animal blood and different things that happen, the sacrifices all point to the one moment on the cross where Jesus would take the penalty for our sin. God saying, you can eat of anything you want, but the blood has to be drained out. And we'll talk more about that as the Bible expands when you get to Leviticus and the dietary regulations and things. Verse 5. It says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. Every animal. And at the hand of man. And at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So there was no police force at this time. No law and order. This was the government that was set up. God ordained government at that time. 
The, the law and order was this. It was if man kills someone, then a man should kill him. So yes, there is capital punishment in the Bible. Murder is not just an attack on man, though. But when murder takes place, it is a, an attack on God because man is made in God's image. And God sees any murder that takes place as an attack on him. Because the human race, people, have great value to God. Every person has great value to God. We're made in his image. All of us. If we are harmed, God says, man, they shall be harmed. If you're harmed by man, God says, they shall be harmed. God wants to set a distinction here early on that there is a difference, again, between man and animals. Human beings are made in God's image. Animals are not. Animals, they could be killed for food. God says you can do that. Just drain the blood up. They can be killed for food. God makes it clear just because that is the case, animals can be killed, doesn't mean you have the right to kill a human being because human beings are different. can't kill a human being because you want to. Why? Because human beings are made in God's image. If man is killed under capital punishment, then man isn't really worth much. Uh, you might think, right? Well, we'll, we'll just kill him. So God doesn't really care if he says they're, they're to be killed. But you don't get the heart of God. Actually, God wants you to know that man has tremendous value. That's why there is this capital punishment. So to bring capital punishment upon someone is a big, heavy deal. But God establishes it as the just thing to do in the case of murder. Not self-defense, not accidents, not in a justified war. We see, there are wars in Scripture that God ordained. We see that through the battles of David and different things. There are times when there is no other choice for a nation but to kill the enemy. So it is done. But killing and murder are two different things. The murder of man is never justified. So it says here that animals fear man. They're going to be under your, the fear of you. At the same time, men are under the fear of God. And if we if we always did things God's way, we wouldn't need as much of a police force, right? I mean, he, he sets out the boundaries. And if we follow the boundaries, it would be a deterrent. Out of fear of consequence, more people would do what's right. When a culture doesn't fear God anymore, what happens? We end up with a nation we live in right now. With man rejecting morality because of no fear of consequence. That's why we see the foolishness in this world. The scripture says this. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And because there is not much fear of God anymore, we are not seeing much wisdom in our country. Capital punishment, though, in this land where we do have it, it's not really a deterrent as it should be. Why? Here's the thing. It can take 10 to 15 years with court appeals after court appeals before the punishment. If it takes that long, it's not really a deterrent. That's like a kid of yours doing something wrong, and you say you're grounded. But you don't tell them they're grounded until 10 years later. That's not a deterrent. I have another 10 years to play around. So our justice system let, lets, lets things off course. But if it's done right, like God has said, it's a deterrent. And there'd be a lot less people if they knew the consequence. And we will come back in our next segment, in verse 7 here. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. Speaking to Noah and his family, God says, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. God says, you guys want to have kids? Go ahead, have as many as you want. Of course, they're still under God's holy institution of marriage. But in a proper biblical marriage, kids aren't limited here. God says, go ahead, have as many as you want here. Multiply, do it. Well, does this mean you can't use birth control? Some, some would take this to mean that. No, not at all. The Bible, in the correct context, speaks nothing of banning birth control. God gives us wisdom to make decisions. To make smart decisions. Abortions, however, is not birth control. Abortion is murder. And we already talked about the consequences of murder. There's a capital punishment, right? Now, today's age, God, God, of course, will forgive anybody for anything. If they sincerely repent and turn to him. But we do need to label it for what it is. Abortion is murder. Now, as far as birth control, birth control is about prevention. Abortion is not about prevention. Abortion is an afterthought. It's after God already creates a new being, a person. Some will say the phrase, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. That argument doesn't hold up scientifically. Your body has its own unique DNA, and then the baby's body in the womb has its own unique DNA. It is not a part of your body if it does not share the same DNA. It is a separate being. The baby, it's only holding residence in the womb. So if it is wrong to kill babies that are outside the womb, which everybody would agree with, 
then it is, of course, wrong to kill them in the womb. Location should not matter on whether something is killed or not. The Bible, as we go through, we're going to notice that murder is wrong in all cases. Killing, of course, is a different matter. Sometimes killing happens in war, in self-defense. And like we talked about earlier, capital punishment, God speaks of it. And when murder takes place, he lays down a, a precedent here, a deterrent that would cause man without a police force to stop murdering, stop the violence. God says that, that that's what happened before the fall, the violence and the hate and the, the progression of sin. I want, I want that done. So here's the deterrent. Murder is always wrong. Murder is pre, premeditated and it's planned out. Verse 8. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the birds, of the cattle, and every beast of the field, every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every animal of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a token, a sign here of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for a token, a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a, a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud. Now look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the sign, the token of my covenant, which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So God's promise here, and his promise still remains today, as do all his promises. He says his promises never fail. God here will not destroy the earth with a worldwide flood again. That's what he's saying. Sure, we have isolated floods. We see that around the world. So we, this is just more proof that the flood that took place in Noah's time was not local. It was worldwide. If you say it wasn't worldwide, you, you would have to say God's lying about it. Because he's very clear. Uh, number one, it, it landed on Mount Ararat that high. Uh, it had to be a worldwide flood. But also, um, we see very clearly here, God says, I will not destroy it in that way again. 
Well, if he's saying he won't have isolated floods again, we we see that. So that would make God a liar. No, we have isolated floods. We don't have a worldwide flood again. And God, that's what God's saying here. I will never destroy it with a worldwide flood again. Doesn't mean he's not going to destroy it. Next time, he's going to destroy the earth. He's going to destroy it with fire. It's going to go up in fervent heat. And then comes the new heaven and new earth. Interesting here, the rainbow in the Hebrew language speaks of a bow and arrow. That's where we get rainbow from, from a bow and arrow. And God is saying, my weapon of judgment, my bow and arrow, a weapon here. I want to put that in the sky. My promise in the sky to remind everyone that I will not judge the world this way. Verse 18. The sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Today, scientifically, people are typically grouped in three groups. Caucasian, Black, or Oriental. And it all goes back to the three, these three sons. Three groups, three sons that came out of Noah. Japheth here ends up, the people end up settling more in the northern Europe area. That was the Caucasians. Shem went more into the east. The birth of the Oriental and, and the Semitic came out of that. And Ham went more south, more of the African nations. And we'll talk more about that next week when we get into the table of the nations. We talk the, the three sons there, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And verse 19 says, These are the three sons of Noah. And of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a, a, a husbandman, a farmer here. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. You know the context there, it's alcoholic wine. And he was uncovered. Within his tent. Now this isn't right after he came off the ark. There's some time here. There had to be enough time for Ham to have a son named Canaan. That will see. Sins somehow as a part of this act. Uh, doesn't clearly say what happens with Canaan. But we know he had a part to play in this. That we're going to read. Noah walked with God for 600 years up to this point. Picture this, 600 years walking uprightly before God, obedient. Here's what can happen. One moment in time can really mess things up. Even if you have 600 years of great moments, one moment can mess things up. And alcohol seems to always cause problems. Alcohol is a depressant. It kills brain cells. Drinking can lead to violence, to regrets, to addictions. Scripture is very clear. We should not be filled with wine, but rather the spirit. And look, point blank, Christians should never be drunk. It is a sin. 
We should, we should never even be under the influence of anything but the Holy Spirit. The scripture says wine is a mocker. It mocks and it rouses brawling. Whoever drinks of it is not wise. So whether God allows drinking or not should not be the thought of it in a Christian's mind. What a Christian should understand is, even though it might not be a sin, it might be allowed. Drunkenness isn't, but but having a drink might be allowed. Christians should understand it's still, it's not wise. So if it's not wise, we should stay away from it. And look, fermentation is a result of the fall of mankind. When fermentation takes place, it's because of decay, because of death. Death and decay are all which enter the land. God said it once, the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And they indeed did spiritually. And the land is suffering the consequences of that. Death came into the land. Death and decay are a result of the fall of man. Now we don't know for sure here because the Bible doesn't say. But I really think that Noah here was not aware of what he was getting himself into. I believe he thought he was getting from his vineyard grape juice. I don't believe he knew what alcoholic wine was. And there's no indication here that Noah did this on purpose, so I don't believe he did. And there's no indication that God was angry with him, as if he disobeyed him. God, Noah didn't know what he's getting himself into. I really believe that. Right here we have the first mention of wine in the Bible. And notice what alcoholic wine does. It leads to sin. You see, he lived in a different world before the fall. Things have changed. Scripture doesn't say, but I really believe Noah discovered alcohol here. He was a discoverer here. First one to discover it. But whether he discovered it out of ignorance or drank out of a choice, either way, Noah sinned here. Scripture teaches us that I believe it's the end of Ecclesiastes says it's not for kings to drink wine. It's not for kings to drink wine. Who's kings? You and I. We're royalty. We're part of the royal priesthood. If you are a believer, uh, a whosoever, you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. It's not for kings to drink. Instead, it says, give wine to those that are perishing. If you are saved, you are not perishing. Perishing means to be separated from God. This kind of drink, it says, give to those that are perishing. So therefore, Christians should not participate in alcoholic consumption. Well, pastor, it's not a sin. So why can't we? Well, first of all, getting drunk is a sin. Having drinks, I would agree, is not. But it's not for us Christians. And it's not a wise thing for anyone. If you want to have a glass of wine with dinner, that's up to you. As for the leadership of a steadfast church, we have in our bylaws very clear that no pastor, no bishop, no elder, no deacon, those in leadership, none will participate in the use of alcohol. 
I'm very thankful for our leadership at the church. I am very confident that none do. And they have no interest in it. Because we as leadership, we aspire to live a biblical example. Even through the staying away from this stuff, being wise about it. But if you want to participate, we won't condemn. We'll encourage you not to and be wise, but we won't condemn. If you are getting drunk because we love you, we will hold you accountable if you're getting drunk and you call yourself a believer. But we won't condemn if you want to have a glass of wine. I, I encourage you, if you're going to make that choice, do it privately. Be, don't lose your witness. But the Bible is very clear. And we have se we've seen it. Uh, the alcohol it, it has shown itself to not be wise, to be foolish in, in many cases, most cases that I've seen. Alcohol has destroyed so many lives. So be wise. Stay away from it. I won't condemn the use, but I will encourage the wisdom of not participating. We see Noah here getting drunk. I haven't seen any mention of alcohol up to this point. I believe he discovered it. Well, anyways, verse 21 again, he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent, so he's naked. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And told his two brethren without. Ham's sin here wasn't that he saw his father's nakedness. Although that's not something that you should try to do. But his sin here was the mocking and the attitude toward his father. Where it says told here, the word told. Says that he told his two brethren without. The word told there indicates to tell with the light. His father's caught in a compromising position and in a sad position. But yeah, it doesn't seem sad to him as he's making a joke of it, making a mockery of it, telling his siblings with the light. You see, he didn't need to inform anyone else of his father's failure here. He should have protected his father, not embarrass him. God is never for someone making fun of someone else's sin. A sin is nothing to make fun of. Sin is serious. And a reaction to it should be sorrow, not enjoyment. Ham, no doubt here, is doing something wrong. Now, I'm not saying that you don't hold your fellow Christian with accountability. We need to do that. If someone is in danger, you warn them, right? In love. But to come against someone's failure is not the heart of God. And God desires for people's failures to be forgiven, not brought up. Not to be spread. Same for us. We, we know something. If we know something about someone that they're doing wrong, no one else needs to know about it. You need to be a faithful friend, a faithful family member, and love them. Hold them accountability where you need to. If they're 
If they're not a believer, they're not going to understand the morality. But if they are a believer, hold them accountable. And if they won't listen, if they're trying, okay, keep praying with them. But if they deny they're doing anything wrong, they push back on it, then you bring somebody else along and try to bring that conversation. And eventually, if you have to, after you, if you've exhausted that, you bring it to the church. But it's never in a put-down way, and it's, we're not about spreading it. We want to keep it as private as possible. Not to embarrass people, but help them through the situation. Each Sam and Jacob were different here. They were very humble. We're going to see they're very humble and kind in the treatment of death. Ham is not. Ham mocks him. He, he tells her, he goes and tells his brothers here, and we'll see how the brothers, how, how they're humble and they, they treat their dad with respect. So again, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his fathers, and he told with the light here, two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth, two other brothers here, they took a garment. Look at the humility here. They laid it upon both their shoulders and went backwards to cover the nakedness of their father, and the faces were backwards. They saw not their father's nakedness. Respect. Verse 24, Noah woke from his wine. The wine had made him pass out. They knew what his younger son had done unto him. He said, this is really the first time we hear, this is the first time we hear Noah speak. We hear of what happened with Noah, but this is him actually speaking. Noah says here, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Curse of Canaan here. Notice it doesn't say curse on Ham, but rather on one of his sons here, Canaan. The curse is upon Canaan. Ham had other sons, but Canaan is the one that's cursed. So, apparently, Canaan here had a part to play in this. We don't know what happened here. The details. But apparently, Canaan did something wrong here. So, out of Ham, Again, Ham had more than one kid. He had Canaan, but he had others. And out of Ham, we'll talk more about this as we get into the Table of Nations next week. Out of Ham, though, came the Egyptians, the Persians, and parts of North Africa. So many descendants. The curse is not on Ham's descendants, but rather it's prophesying that takes place here that will happen to Canaan. And the descendants of Canaan, the Canaanites. But again, even though the curse is upon the Canaanites, not all of them were destroyed. Rahab was a Canaanite and a prostitute. Messed up herself. But because of her belief, she was saved. So there was a curse upon Canaan, but anyone that repents and turns to God finds forgiveness. And that is God's heart. Now, some have taken this passage wrong, extremely wrong, and with prejudice here. 
Some say the curse is on dark-skinned people here. The Bible says no such thing. Those that have come up with that is come from a prejudiced background. The Bible speaks nothing of that. There are, there are no racial implications here. The reality, though, was that the Canaanites were cursed. So when people speak of this being a curse on dark-skinned people, and speaking of how slavery, there was justification for slavery, there is no justification for slavery in the way that has taken place in this nation or other nations. They have done it in the same manner. Slavery was not a judgment of God. Well, he has sent people into captivity, allowed them. But God does not approve of slavery in the way that blacks were treated in our history. God does not approve of slavery of my ancestors, of the Irish, or any other form of slavery in an ownership role. Slavery in this manner was a sin. It was man's doing, the progression of sin. It was man's doing, not God's. Now, there is a form of slavery in the Bible that had regulations. It was not that, though. It was not what happened to blacks. In our country. But slavery in the Bible, where it had regulations, was an opportunity to work off debt. You got yourself in trouble and debt and had no way to pay it. You could agree to go and work it off. And you would work and pay off your debt in the seven years, and the seventh year be set free. So it's, it's, it's going and paying your bill. The slavery in that way that most people understand, like like it's happened with ownership and cruelty and all that, that's totally wrong. And God does not approve. The Bible doesn't approve, and it was not the curse of Canaan. It had nothing to do with skin color. It had nothing to do with prejudice. Canaanites were cursed because of their actions, not because of the color of the skin. Canaanites were cursed because of the sin of a fallen human race. Verse 26 here says, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Not blessed be Shem, but the Lord God of Shem. Shem was obviously faithful to God. Or it wouldn't be Lord. So Shem's going to be blessed absolutely because when you delight in the Lord, you're going to be happy and blessed. So blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant here. Shem will be the line which Abraham would come through, and the line of Jesus Christ as well. Let's just finish the chapter here. And verse 28 says, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We thank you guys for joining us this week. We trust that God's word is, is making a difference in your life as we go verse by verse chronologically through the scriptures. If you enjoyed the podcast, invite somebody else to listen. The word of God changes hearts. It changes minds. It brings us 
happiness. Blessed is the man who walketh not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor takes a seat in the, or there's the scornful, the mockers. But yet, he delights in the law of the Lord, his book, and he chews upon it, meditates upon it day and night. If you do that, you're going to be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. And you're going to bring forth fruit in your season. There's going to be blessedness, happiness. That's what the world needs. See you all guys next week. Know that Jesus loves you. Christ loves you. And he was committed to us on the cross. So the only reasonable thing is to be committed to him. So would you do that with us? Stay steadfast. Be steadfast. Walking in the word of God. And seeking his face. We'll see you all next week. Fire inside of me.